Welcome to the People Who Read People podcast with me, Zachary Elwood. This is a podcast about understanding why people act the way they do, what drives them, what drives us. You can learn more about the podcast at behavior-podcast.com. Do you feel that social media has hurt your relationships? Not just amongst people you disagree with politically, but with friends and family in general. If so, you're not alone in feeling that way. And I think there are real and very understandable reasons for why internet communication tools amplify our divides and increase social animosity. Do you think that social media amplifies extreme, bad ways of thinking? In the same way, I think there are some pretty easy-to-understand aspects of social media that make extreme thinking more likely. Last October in 2020, I spent five weeks researching and writing a piece about how social media divides us. I recorded a reading of that for this podcast, but I've since written a more concise version of that piece that I think is also just a better version, so I wanted to do a reading of that newer version. A couple of things that I think are interesting and worthwhile about this piece. My piece is focused on inherent aspects of internet communication, not on product features. If you followed some of the public discourse about social media, you've probably noticed that most of the focus is on the product decisions. For example, the reaction emojis that Facebook uses, or how Facebook and YouTube implement their content recommendation algorithms. But in my opinion, the focus on product features is really missing a key piece of the puzzle, which is that maybe internet communication itself, no matter how it's designed, has inherent aspects that divide us. If this were true, it would mean that even a very simple communication platform, like Reddit, would have an effect of increasing division in a population. If this were true, it would mean that even if you tried your best to create product features aimed at minimizing animosity and division, and aimed at promoting connection, the net effect would still be an increase in division. I get the feeling that most tech people don't want to talk about such an idea. At least the tech people who are most incentivized to provide interviews and quotes for articles and documentaries. Tech industry people have understandable incentives to portray themselves as capable of fixing the problem. And fixing the problem for tech companies means creating new and different product features. A tech industry expert probably wouldn't increase the demand for their services by talking about how maybe these are problems that are impossible or at least very hard to solve with more product features. And also, I think news outlets and journalists and documentary makers are incentivized to look for human villains because villains are more sexy and exciting. At least more exciting than the idea that maybe we're largely fighting a battle with some pretty basic aspects of modern communication technologies, or maybe simply a battle with our own internal psychology. Another thing I'm proud of about this piece is that it contains an original idea. As far as I know, I'm the first person who's linked social media to a 1950s Gerard and Deutsch study that showed that writing things down makes people more stubborn and less likely to change their minds. I learned about that study in the classic book Influence, written by Robert Cialdini. I was initially incentivized to write my social media piece when I tweeted about this study to political psychology researcher John Haidt, who's done some great work on the negative effects of social media. And I was surprised to learn that Haidt hadn't heard about that study. And then I noticed that no one seemed to have made that connection with that study. So I figured, well, maybe it would be helpful to accumulate that and other similar medium is the message type ideas in one piece. And I'll say the Gerard and Deutsch study really spoke to me. I've noticed a defensiveness in myself when people criticize the random half-thought-out things that I sometimes post on social media. 
And I think our human tendency to want to stick to our guns and not back down is probably a key factor in how the internet may be deranging us. And I highlight this unique idea here, not just to brag, but because if someone has seen this connection written about before, I'd love to know it. I've talked to quite a few social media researchers, and I think it's a unique connection, but if you've seen it discussed elsewhere, I'd appreciate knowing that. You can get links to the written versions of my piece from my podcast site, behavior-podcast.com. Okay, here's the reading of the abridged version of my piece. How Social Media Divides Us. The subtitle is, If Broadcast TV Was an Opiate of the Masses, Is Social Media an Amphetamine? Does social media play a role in amplifying our divides and increasing political polarization? Much of the thinking around this idea has focused on specific product features, like the use of addictive UI design, as examined in the documentary The Social Dilemma, or content recommendation algorithms that show people increasingly extreme content, or Facebook using private data for political advertising, as examined in the documentary The Great Hack. But what if the focus on product features is wrong? What if the focus on product features is being largely driven by people in the tech industry who have an incentive to promote their abilities to solve these problems using different product features? What if this focus on product features is distracting us from something more fundamental and intrinsic about these technologies? What if internet communication, simply by speeding up and distorting our interactions, agitates us in ways that don't have much to do with product decisions? What if putting human interactions effectively on speed results in amplifying some of the darker aspects of our social psychology? For some examples of how there may be inherent aspects of social media that amplify divides and extreme thinking, there are psychology studies that support all of the following ideas. Writing down our beliefs makes us more committed to those beliefs. Being insulted makes us more committed to our beliefs. Being in like-minded groups makes us more extreme. Angry messages spread more easily online than non-angry messages. And all of these things happen more frequently on the internet than they do in traditional in-person encounters. In this piece, I go into detail about the above research and other studies. I bring together ideas that might help us answer the question, if social media contributes to dividing us, what are the psychological processes by which it does that? In the piece here, I included a Twitter poll that I conducted that asked, do you believe that social media has a dividing, polarizing effect on us? That poll got 770 votes and 72.6% of the respondents voted for yes, a lot. 19% of the respondents voted for yes, some. Only 4.5% voted no. The Basics of Our Tribal Psychology Before getting to social media effects, let's briefly examine some basic psychological factors that seem to point to the underlying root causes for the tendency of humans to form into aggressive us-versus-them dynamics. The outgroup homogeneity effect. We view our own group as being made up of individuals with diverse views and personalities, but we view the other group, the outgroup, as a mass of single-minded people, a monolithic, homogeneous group. In-group favoritism. Relatedly, if members of our own group have faults, if they do something wrong, we tend to overlook that and make excuses for them, but we will harshly judge members of the out-group for their transgressions. Our language plays a big role in the polarization process. To take one example of inaccurate language that increases societal polarization, 
It's common to see liberals say things online like, all Trump supporters are racist. But the simple fact that there are black Trump supporters and other people of color who support Trump should be sufficient evidence that this belief that the other group is all the same, or even mostly the same, is not correct. Our perception of a group as monolithic doesn't make it true. Our perceptions are not other people's perceptions. And I could have just as easily used an example of inaccurate, polarizing Trump supporter language. The point is the same. And the more that one group speaks in all-encompassing, unreasonably hateful, inaccurate ways about the other group, the more the other group is going to return the favor. Before getting to the specific psychological effects, let's quickly examine how some of these things tend to play out and amplify each other online. Members of one political or cultural group say things like, if you're a member of this other group, you're a moron. Members of the insulted group see those messages and get angry. Due to the outgroup homogeneity effect, they perceive the opponent group as more hateful and unreasonable than they previously did. Those members then go online and post similar insults about the first group. The first group reads those insults and perceives the opponent group as more hateful and unreasonable than they previously did. And so on in an amplifying cycle, with more and more people involved and more and more group versus group animosity involved. Here, to emphasize the point of how we tend to simplify the other side, I included a tweet from someone that said, If you want us to believe that not all Trump supporters are racist, stop posting memes saying all liberals want to kill babies, hate the police, hate America, and hate guns. End quote. To be clear, this is not to say that social media is the primary cause for polarization problems. Looking at history, it's clear that humans pretty frequently come to be at each other's throats with or without help from technology. But what we're examining is the ways in which internet communication may be an efficient amplifier of our natural tribal tendencies. Now let's take a closer look at the processes by which social media may be amplifying such tendencies. Factor number one, social media makes us more stubborn. For almost all of history, most conversation was a private affair, ephemeral and quickly fading from memory. It's new and unusual to have so much of our conversation publicly on display and recorded for others to see later. It'd be surprising if such a big change didn't have an effect on our minds and our society. In a 1955 study by Gerard and Deutsch, they found that writing things down, whether privately or publicly, made people less likely to change their minds. Robert Cialdini's book Influence summarizes this study. The students who had never written down their first choices were the least loyal to those choices. Those who had merely written their decisions for a moment on a magic pad were significantly less willing to change their minds when given the chance. By far, it was the students who had publicly recorded their initial positions who most resolutely refused to shift from those positions later. Public commitment had hardened them into the most stubborn of all. End quote. Another study supporting this idea is a 2020 study by Strandberg et al. They had people fill out surveys on various political topics and then manipulated some of the polarized answers to be more neutral. 94% of the subjects defended the manipulated answers as their own. Their belief that they'd stated a different opinion made them internalize and defend that opinion. Even more surprising, their attitudes even persisted one week later. If we feel a need to defend and internalize things we've never even said, it stands to reason we must also feel a need to defend and internalize things we've actually said, no matter how quickly conceived or ill thought out. Using social media means frequently writing down our beliefs. There is a pressure to express an opinion on events and topics. 
and many of these statements of ours will be very quickly conceived and barely thought out. These are the kinds of thoughts that, in a pre-digital world, might simply be the starting point of us building more nuanced and less polarized views. Social media, by inducing us to make all sorts of statements, especially publicly and especially simplistic takes, may be hardening our beliefs, making us resistant to listening to others and to changing our minds. And here in the piece to illustrate this concept, I used a tweet from someone that read, Liberals ruin everything and you'll never change my mind on that. Factor number two, social media promotes negative emotions. There's a lot one can get upset about these days. The internet gives us awareness of so many events from across the country and the world in a way that's unprecedented in human history. At any given point in time, there are many horrible things happening on earth. This has always been the case, but now we can easily learn about many of these things and learn about them in detail. We perhaps aren't naturally well equipped to deal with so many sources of anger, fear, and sadness. And we seem to be hardwired to pay attention to negative emotions. From an evolutionary point of view, negative emotions are associated with threats, so it makes sense that we respond more to those than more relaxing and positive emotions. It's been shown that social media messages with more emotional language gets more attention and shares. It's also been shown that anger is more influential than other emotions for spreading messages online. As the saying goes, a lie can travel around the world and back again while the truth is lacing up its boots. One reason a lie, or just an angry take, can travel fast is that it isn't constrained by the need for nuance and context. It can just tell a simple good versus evil story that appeals to our emotions. Fake news stories are at their most harmful when they have an emotional quality to them because they become effective tools for arousing anger and violent responses. For example, there have been many instances in India of violence caused by fake news. To take another example, there have been riots in Minneapolis caused by fake news. As anger proliferates online, social media allows one political group to view the most angry and unreasonable views of the other group. Social media, with its lack of nuance, its speed of action, and its promotion of passionate takes, makes angry overreactions and misinterpretations common. This ramping up of anger in one group in turn makes the other group more angry, or at the very least more likely to view the first group's concerns as silly and unserious. Factor number three. Social media is distant and dehumanizing. A 2017 study by Abe Rutchick showed that it's easier to kill when we're physically distant from the killing. If it's easier to kill at a distance, it stands to reason it's easier to be unreasonable or insulting or threatening when interacting with people many miles away. Audio video call tools, whether the telephone or Zoom, are also long-distance communication tools, but they force a more traditional human interaction. We are more cognizant of the other person's humanity due to their voice or their facial expressions. Seeing and hearing other people activates our best social instincts. Also, because it's a more shallow form of communication than audio and video, pure text communication leads to more misunderstandings and hence more anger than we would otherwise have. Factor number four, social media breeds insults, which amplify group grievances. Due to the distant nature of the internet, and due to our increasingly polarized landscape, insults are common online, and the internet allows you to easily find insults to your group. Some group members promote such insults in order to rile up their own group. Social psychologist Karina Kurostalina is the author of Political Insults, How Offenses Escalate Conflict, 
In my interview with Karina, she said that the internet had likely increased human conflict due to the increased creation and perception of insults. A 1967 study by Robert Abelson showed that when subjects were insulted during the course of a discussion, that, quote, increased the extremity of their initial attitude position, end quote, in a type of boomerang effect. Next time you're insulted online, study how you feel. Do you feel an instinctual us-versus-them anger? Even if you logically know that the person insulting you doesn't represent their entire large group, and even if you know that there are also mean and unreasonable people on your own side, there can be that instinctual feeling of, this entire group is as bad as this one person, when we have such interactions. Factor number five, social media fosters familiarity, which can breed contempt. Political polarization might be part of a broader pattern of social media just generally increasing our dislike of each other. In a 2007 paper, Less is More, The Lure of Ambiguity, Michael Norton's research team found that familiarity, as the saying goes, can breed contempt. Knowing little about the people around us can have value as a social lubricant. Without reason to believe otherwise, we tend to assume that other people are like us in various ways. The more we know about someone, the more likely we are to discover something we dislike. This becomes even more true the more a society becomes polarized. In Jamie Settle's book, Frenemies, How Social Media is Polarizing America, she showed that Facebook use was associated with an increase in people's animosity towards members of the other political group. The primary way this seemed to happen was that Facebook allowed people to more easily place their non-close acquaintances for example, a hairdresser, a babysitter, a teacher, into in-group or out-group categories and allowed them to interpret posts through that lens in ways that would happen less frequently pre-internet. And here in the piece, I included a Twitter poll, which asked, let's examine interactions with people on your political side. Via social media, have you learned things about politically similar people that have made you dislike them more than you think you would have without social media? 190 people responded to that poll. 27% said that it happened a lot to them. 36% said it had happened a fair amount. Factor number six. Social media removes normal social context. Interactions on social media happen outside of the normal frames of reference that have traditionally defined human relationships. In pre-internet days, we interacted with people based on various frames of reference like meeting as neighbors or as close friends or as fellow churchgoers. Our interactions were guided by that frame. But online, this helpful context is stripped away. Communication researchers call this context collapse. This can lead to us misunderstanding each other more, making us less likable to each other. To take an example from my own life, my wife had posted a message about veganism on Facebook, and an old friend of mine responded with something like, I'm so glad we all have so much free time that we can worry about stuff like this. It was out of character for him to be rude. He later apologized and explained that when he made that comment, he'd just come from spending time with a friend whose child had died. When he saw my wife's post, his immediate internal reaction was something like, how petty to be worried about this with all the tragedy in the world. But the way we perceive the world at a specific moment seldom aligns with others' perceptions and priorities at that point in time. Even our own perception of what's right or important can change throughout the day. Something you posted online yesterday may seem tone-deaf and embarrassing to you tomorrow. Most of the things any of us do or say will seem petty and unimportant to someone somewhere. 
especially when compared to issues of life and death. In my example, my friend would likely never have said such a thing to my wife in pre-internet days, and that's because in-person interactions give us helpful frames of reference and activate our more charitable social instincts. In-person socializing fosters a natural give-and-take dynamic, while social media communication takes the form of a series of isolated statements. When I interviewed a police captain for my podcast, he mentioned how he thought that 911 calls for family fights and domestic disturbances had risen due to misunderstandings and conflicts that originated on social media. Without the context we're accustomed to, we can appear to each other petty, heartless, and hard to understand. We will frequently misunderstand each other and assign motives and feelings to each other that aren't there. You'll now be hearing an ad. I don't endorse these ads, and I encourage you to remain skeptical of all ads. Join us each week on the Well Beyond Medicine podcast as we explore the 80% of child health impacts that occur outside the doctor's office. Listen and subscribe at NemoursWellBeyond.org, where you'll hear pediatric experts, researchers, and policymakers from around the world discussing ways they are revolutionizing children's health. I'm your host, Carol Vassar. Let's go. Factor number seven, social media gives power to the more extreme. People who are more active on social media don't represent most of society. From a Pew Research study, most users rarely tweet, but the most prolific 10% create 80% of tweets from adult U.S. users, end quote. And most Americans don't follow politics closely. From an October 2020 New York Times article, What we found is that most Americans, upward of 80% to 85%, follow politics casually or not at all. Just 15% to 20% follow it closely, the people we call deeply involved. End quote. A 2018 survey about U.S. polarization showed that we're pressured to conform to the beliefs of people around us. Pressure to conform to one's group has always been present, but social media increases our anxiety of being judged publicly in full view of everyone, and of being judged by multiple people in our own group, maybe even hundreds or thousands of people. Such anxiety understandably leads to fewer people criticizing their own group online, and this dynamic creates the perception that the more extreme and angry views are more common and unquestioned than they are. If you're politically liberal and you felt some pressure to not criticize some liberal thinking that you find unreasonable, then you can perhaps relate to the pressure that some moderate conservatives might feel to fall in line as their friends and family become more extreme, and vice versa if you're conservative and you've felt such pressures. We all want to think the best of the people in our group. We want to assume they're good and reasonable people. But this in-group favoritism can lead us astray when the more extreme people hold undue influence. Factor number eight, social media makes like-minded groups grow more extreme. The term group polarization describes the psychological effect of how like-minded groups grow more extreme over time. There are quite a few studies about group polarization in social media. One 2010 study of Twitter users found that replies between like-minded individuals strengthen group identity, whereas replies between different-minded individuals reinforce in-group and out-group affiliation. The 2020 study by Stephen Johnson showed Facebook led to increased polarization. They wrote that 
Facebook indeed serves as an echo chamber, end quote. The internet can be viewed as a tool for bringing like-minded people together and giving them spaces to craft and spread ideas. And that's obviously great in many ways, but it also has negative effects. Before the internet, it would have been hard to get many people together in one place to discuss whether the earth might be flat. Now it's easy. And before the internet, it would have been hard to get a bunch of people together to discuss their interest in pedophilia and child pornography. Now that's easy. When we find others who think like us, it lends credibility to ideas and experiences that we otherwise might have doubted or only temporarily considered. In mainstream media, the focus has been mostly on extreme right-wing ideas, like the fact that half of Trump supporters apparently believe that there's a pedophilic sex trafficking operation run by top Democrats. Or the fact that many Trump supporters believe the 2020 presidential election was rigged. But the predominant focus on extreme right-wing ideas misses the point that these dynamics may be affecting many people across the board. If you're a liberal, this means recognizing that many liberals have unreasonable and extreme views. For a few examples, believing that the government is putting fluoride in the water for nefarious purposes, believing that white supremacist government agents are using fireworks to destabilize black communities. That was something that some people tweeted about. Believing that the Trump administration is using Melania Trump body doubles. Believing that fighting with cops in the streets is part of a battle against a fascist, white supremacist government takeover, as espoused by an Antifa BLM protester on my podcast. Believing that because a war-torn region of Syria has no formal police force, that that lends credence to the idea that modern societies can abolish police. Even regarding election-is-rigged types of beliefs by Trump supporters, a 2016 survey showed that 33% of Hillary Clinton voters believed that the election was illegitimate, and a 2020 study by Thomas Popinski showed that comparable numbers of Democrats and Republicans were set to believe the 2020 election was illegitimate if their candidate lost. In some anti-cop and racial justice Facebook groups I've spent some time in, There's widespread sharing of fake news, misleading framings of events, conspiracy theories, and hateful speech towards cops and white people, just as there are hateful and unreasonable things in many pro-Trump Facebook groups. In the piece, as an example of some of the hateful stuff I've seen online, I included an image from a Facebook group called Fuck the Police. The news headline in the post read, Two Los Angeles County Sheriff's deputies shot in apparent ambush near train station. That post had 16 reactions, including 10 heart emojis, three thumbs up emojis, and three laugh emojis. A surprising number of people seem to have burn it down answers to society's problems. In a study by Michael Bang Peterson and colleagues about destructive so called need for chaos worldviews, 24% of people surveyed agreed with or did not disagree with the statement that. Society should be burned to the ground. And 40% either agreed with or did not disagree with the statement that we cannot fix the problems in our social institutions. We need to tear them down and start over. Interestingly, the study authors related this to social media usage, saying that, quote, a segment of the American electorate that was once peripheral is drawn to chaos incitement, and this segment has gained decisive influence through the rise of social media, end quote. Such types of views were found in significant degree amongst both Trump and Bernie Sanders supporters. And in Jennifer McCoy's research on political polarization, she found that Bernie Sanders supporters as a group had more Manichaean, 
black and white thinking than did Trump supporters as a group. That was unpublished, but discussed in my interview of McCoy on my podcast. If we're going to think seriously about the factors that may be amplifying our divides and increasing extreme ideas, we have to be willing to examine how our own in-group favoritism may lead us to give a pass to unreasonable people in our own group. This does not mean believing that all political groups are equal in their degree of extreme thinking. In other words, it doesn't require you to believe that both sides are equally at fault. It does mean being open to examining effects at an individual human level, even if you believe one side is worse. If our goal is understanding unreasonable group versus group animosity, part of that is realizing that we're all just human individuals, that our political groups are not monolithic. All of us are capable of being misguided or deceived in various ways. Factor number nine. The internet speeds everything up. The internet can be seen as an accelerant of social interaction. Before the internet, it was hard to get content in front of people. Now it's very easy. This ease of sharing has many obvious benefits, but it also results in us being inundated by a deluge of information with no time to process it well. It's possible that the period of American history when broadcast TV was our dominant media, roughly the 50s to the 80s, pre-cable TV news, had a calming effect due to most people being influenced by only a few fairly monolithic and aligned sources of information. If TV was an opiate of the masses in that way, perhaps social media can be seen as an amphetamine of the masses, fracturing us with many competing worldviews and amplifying our reactions. The internet allows us to quickly align, react, and organize in a way that previous media did not. The Arab Spring protests and George Floyd protests were hastened and amplified by social media communications. That speediness can have positive aspects, e.g. the ability to quickly share information and to organize, but it can also lead to overreactions and instability, like a train going too fast around curves. As noted, violence caused by false information is increasingly common these days. In support of this idea, in the piece, I included a tweet that read, Oh, for fuck's sake, you know in Minneapolis we had a second round of riots because a murder suspect killed himself and social media said the cops killed another black man. 100% false. Downtown is still boarded up from that. People are so damn stupid and on a hair trigger nowadays. End quote. And such overreactions in turn have reactions. Violent behavior caused by extreme beliefs or misunderstandings will increase feelings of animosity in the opposite political party or push more moderate people away from a group. In an interview I did for my podcast with Omar Wasso, he talked about the impacts of violent protests and riots on voting behavior and how it turned populations more conservative. The internet serves to wire us all together more and more tightly, and one result of this is that as a societal body, our nerves are more sensitive, more frayed. We're all more on edge. And maybe there are other potential accelerants these days. People are spending more and more time online, and COVID has increased our time spent online while also depriving us of the tempering influence of normal social interactions. You'll now be hearing an ad. I don't endorse these ads, and I encourage you to remain skeptical of all ads. Did you know that you can change what you taste by what you hear? How can you use sound to make a deeper connection with your clients? Can we be healed with sound? Sound influences people in their buying decisions and their daily lives. In the podcast audio branding, I explore all of this, both with my own observations as a voice actor of over 15 years 
and by interviewing knowledgeable professionals in the field of advertising, marketing, music, and science. To have a listen for yourself, visit audiobrandingpodcast.com. Factor number 10. Social media is perceived as an important battleground. Despite most social media content being made by a small percentage of people, social media seems to be often perceived as being an important arena of conflict, a place where important societal battles are being fought. In a paper by Shannon McGregor about news coverage during the 2016 election, she examines how journalists cover social media. She explains, quote, I find that despite social media users not reflecting the electorate, the press reported online sentiments and trends as a form of public opinion that services the horse race narrative and complements survey polling and Vox Populi quotes, end quote, and that journalists worried about an over-reliance on social media to inform coverage. Part of this is related to budgetary cuts to newspapers and journalism in general. It's much easier and cheaper to cover social media than it is to do in-depth journalism. Social media being covered as news could also contribute to older Americans being more polarized, as shown in some studies. If the younger generation is more accustomed to social media culture, perhaps they've become more accustomed to some of the aspects of social media discussed in this piece and are less agitated by it, while older Americans may see extreme or hateful social media posts and believe that the opposite political group has become more extreme and unreasonable than it actually is. So what can we do about this? When reading this, you may have been thinking, no matter how polarization happens or what social media's role is, there's still a lot to be angry about right now. And yes, there is. I am not arguing to not be angry, to not work towards political goals you see as important. But we can still attempt to achieve our goals while keeping in mind that how we interact with people, the language that we use, plays a role in either bringing us closer together or driving us farther apart. And working to speak carefully and build bridges will likely do more to achieve our political goals than will any us-versus-them thinking. For one thing, consider how close the 2016 and 2020 American elections were. A little bit of goodwill and empathy can go a long way to nudging a few middle-of-the-road people over to your side. Inaccurate, polarizing language and good-versus-evil narratives seem unlikely to do so. And to be clear, I am not saying you should behave like a saint and be nice to everyone online. The path to decreasing political polarization is building more bridges between the most reasonable and least extreme people. Remember that most of the population isn't that extreme and wants to find ways to work together. If someone is extreme, unreasonable, and rude, I think it's fine to go ahead and criticize them or mock them if you want, although ignoring them is probably better. One reason I was motivated to write this piece is that it seems like the leaders and influencers I would have expected to make more attempts to build bridges and bring us together haven't been doing a good job. In other countries that have fallen apart, there were probably many ordinary people, people like you and me, assuming that the people in charge would take care of things, that it wasn't their responsibility, as a non-leader, as a regular citizen, to fix things. But maybe the only way to avoid worst-case scenarios is by all of us realizing that no one is coming to save us, that it's up to all of us to consider the role we all play in these group dynamics. Because there are powerful forces at work, tribal forces deep inside of us, and maybe it will take an unusual shift in societal awareness to turn the tide against these oft-repeated self-destructive processes. Here are some ideas for ways we can better use social media to help decrease unreasonable anger and polarization. Speak carefully. Avoid speaking in inaccurate and all-encompassing, all-Trump supporters or X type of ways. 
focus your criticisms and ire on the people you know are directly at fault, for example, political leaders, and not the mass of citizens whose motives and beliefs are varied and hard to know. This will make your language more persuasive and less likely to cause anger. Make points and avoid angry interactions. If you're being abused and insulted online, keep in mind that they're just one person and they don't represent every member of that group. It's okay to make your point and then leave a conversation and not respond further. Fighting on social media doesn't accomplish much and will mainly serve to make everyone more angry. Be skeptical of simplistic emotional takes. If you're someone who often immediately shares the latest outrage you see online, you're probably sharing many takes that are unnuanced or inaccurate. Our political and cultural bubbles result in us seeing and consuming a lot of biased takes. If you see a simplistic emotional post, especially if it's something that's hard to believe, spend a little time researching it before you share it. Be aware of how our political bubbles can cause us to accept extreme and unreasonable views. We are all influenced by the people around us. As anxiety levels ramp up and extreme views become more common, we should be especially on guard against this because as one group grows more extreme and angry, the other group will tend to take extreme opposite stances in reaction to the first group's stances, no matter how illogical that may be. We should speak up when we feel that people on our side are being unreasonable. The more we do this, the less extreme our group is perceived by moderate people, and the more we lower the heat. Don't be afraid to change your mind and admit mistakes. We all need to accept that we will frequently make mistakes, whether that's phrasing things badly or just thinking about things wrongly. It's not a bad thing to change your mind or to admit you're wrong or to apologize. Doing that publicly will influence others to emulate our behavior. Show how you don't fit into the stereotypes of your group. One of the ways to combat group versus group animosity is to demonstrate that we don't fit neatly into the stereotypical traits of our political group. We can be living examples of how we all have much more nuance and complexity than is perceived. For example, if you're a rancher who's a Second Amendment proponent, but who mostly votes Democrat because you believe in a strong social safety net, sharing your views will weaken group associations and group-related animosity. Jamie Settle, who researched how Facebook divides us, points to this as one of the things we can all do to counter outgroup animosity. But of course, in an increasingly polarized society, this can take some courage. If social media does have a society fracturing effect, we'll need more education about how that happens. A lot of the work in this area is focused on teaching people how to differentiate fake news from real news, or focused on specific features or algorithms. But if it's true that online communication tools have inherently polarizing effects, then we'll need to broaden the scope of this education. We may need more political literacy in the form of educating people about how, despite perceptions, most people have a lot in common. And we may need more psychological literacy in the form of educating people about our social and emotional instincts and how those can lead us to some dark places. In early 2021, I talked to a high school class about these topics. Their teacher recognized that these topics were especially important for children who must navigate a complex and contentious environment that also poses threats to their emotional well-being. Personally, I think we need more of this kind of teaching in schools. We need more people to recognize that these topics are important for society. We need more citizens to start thinking about these dynamics early. Okay, this has been the People Who Read People podcast with me, Zach Elwood. I've been reading a piece that I researched and wrote from a year ago. You can learn more about this podcast at behavior-podcast.com. If you think these are important or even just interesting ideas, please share this podcast with people you know. I'd also greatly appreciate ratings and reviews on iTunes or the platform you listen on. 
You can follow me on Twitter at apokerplayer. Okay, thanks for listening. Music by Small Skies. Small Skies.